This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The New Accelerator by H.G. Wells. It's read by Mr. Jim Moon. It runs 40 minutes, and I'll be discussing it with him afterwards. The New Accelerator by H.G. Wells Certainly, if ever a man found a guinea when he was looking for a pin, it is my good friend, Professor Gibbon. I have heard before of investigators overshooting the mark, but never quite to the extent that he has done. He has really, this time at any rate, without any touch of exaggeration in the phrase, found something to revolutionize human life. And that when he was simply seeking an all-round nervous stimulant to bring languid people up to the stresses of these pushful days. I have tasted the stuff now several times, and I cannot do better than describe the effect the thing had on me. That there are astonishing experiences in store for all in search of new sensations will become apparent enough. Professor Gibbon, as many people know, is my neighbour in Folkestone. Unless my memory plays me a trick, his portrait at various ages has already appeared in the Strand magazine, I think late in 1899. But I am unable to look it up because I have lent that volume to someone who has never sent it back. The reader may, perhaps, recall the high forehead and the singularly long black eyebrows that give such a Mephistophelian touch to his face. He occupies one of those pleasant little detached houses, in the mixed style that makes the western end of Upper Sandgate Road so interesting. His is the one with the Flemish gables and the Moorish portico, and it is in the little room with the mullioned bay window that he works when he is down here and in which, on an evening, we have so often smoked and talked together. He is a mighty jester, but besides, he likes to talk to me about his work. He is one of those men who find a help and stimulus in talking, and so I have been able to follow the conception of the new accelerator right up from a very early stage. Of course, the greater portion of his experimental work is not done in Folkestone, but in Gower Street, in the fine new laboratory next to the hospital that he has been the first to use. As everyone knows, or at least as all intelligent people know, the special department in which Gibbon has gained so great and deserved a reputation among physiologists is the action of drugs upon the nervous system, upon soporifics, sedatives, and anaesthetics, he is, I am told, unequalled. He is also a chemist of considerable eminence, and I suppose in the subtle and complex jungle of riddles that centres around the ganglion nerve and the axis fibre, there are little cleared places of his making, little glades of illumination, that, until he sees fit to publish his results, are still inaccessible to every other living man. And in the last few years, 
he has been particularly assiduous upon this question of nervous stimulants. And already, before the discovery of the new accelerator, very successful with them. Medical science has him to thank for at least three distinct and absolutely safe invigorators of unrivaled value to practicing men. In cases of exhaustion, the preparation known as Gibbons B syrup has, I suppose, saved more lives already than any lifeboat around the coast. But none of these little things begin to satisfy me yet. He told me nearly a year ago, either they increase the central energy without affecting the nerves, or they simply increase the available energy by lowering the nervous conductivity. And all of them are unequal and local in their operation. One wakes up the heart and viscera and leaves the brain stupefied. One gets at the brain champagne fashion and does nothing good for the solar plexus. And what I want... And what, if it's an earthly possibility I mean to have, is a stimulant that stimulates all round, that wakes you up for a time from the crown of your head to the tip of your great toe, and makes you go two, even three, to everyone else's one. Eh, that's the thing I'm after. It would tire a man, I said. Not a doubt of it, and you'd eat double or treble and all that. But just think what the thing would mean. Imagine yourself with a little vial like this. He held up a little bottle of green glass and marked his points with it. And in this precious vial is the power to think twice as fast, move twice as quickly, do twice as much work in a given time as you could otherwise do. But is such a thing possible? I believe so. If it isn't, I've wasted my time for a year. These various preparations of the hypophosphites, for example, seem to show something of the sort. Even if it was only one and a half times as fast, it would do. It would do, I said. If you were a statesman in a corner, for example, time rushing up against you, something urgent to be done, eh? He could dose his private secretary, I said, and gain double time. Think if you, for example, wanted to finish a book. Usually, I said, I wish I'd never begun em. Or a doctor, driven to death, wants to sit down and think out a case. Or a barrister, or a man cramming for an examination. Worth a guinea a drop said I, and more to men like that. And in a duel again, said Gibbon, where it all depends on your quickness in pulling the trigger. Or in fencing, I echoed. You see, said Gibbon, if I get it at an all-round thing, it will really do you no harm at all, except perhaps to an infinitesimal degree it brings you nearer old age. You will just have lived twice to other people's once. I suppose, I meditated, in a duel, would it be fair? That is a question for the seconds, said Gibbon. I harked back further. 
And you think such a thing is possible? I said. As possible, said Gibbon, and glanced at something that went throbbing by the window. As a motorbus, as a matter of fact. He paused and smiled at me deeply, and tapped slowly on the edge of his desk with the green vial. I think I know the stuff. I've already got something coming. The nervous smile upon his face betrayed the gravity of his revelation. He rarely talked of his actual experimental work unless things were very near the end. And it may be, it may be. I shouldn't be surprised. It may even do the thing at a greater rate than twice. It will be a rather big thing, I hazarded. It will be, I think, a rather big thing. But I don't think he quite knew what a big thing it was to be. For all that, I remember we had several talks about the stuff after that. The new accelerator, he called it, and his tone about it grew more confident on each occasion. Sometimes he talked nervously of unexpected physiological results its use might have, and then he would get a little unhappy. At others, he was frankly mercenary, and we debated long and anxiously how the preparation might be turned to commercial account. It's a good thing," said Gibbon. "A tremendous thing. I know I'm giving the world something, and I think it only reasonable that we should expect the world to pay. The dignity of science is all very well, but I think somehow I must have the monopoly of the stuff for, say, ten years. I don't see why all the fun in life should go to the dealers in ham. My own interest in the coming drug certainly did not wane in the time. I have always had a queer little twist towards metaphysics in my mind. I have always been given to paradoxes about space and time, and it seemed to me that Gibbon was really preparing no less than the absolute acceleration of life. Suppose a man repeatedly dosed with such a preparation, he would live an active and record life indeed. But he would be an adult at eleven, middle-aged at twenty-five, and by thirty, well on the road to senile decay. It seemed to me that so far Gibbon was only going to do for anyone who took his drug exactly what nature has done for the Jews and Orientals, who are men in their teens and aged by fifty, and quicker in thought and act than we are all the time. The marvel of drugs has always been great to my mind. You can madden a man, calm a man, make him incredibly strong and alert, or a helpless log, quicken this passion and allay that, all by means of drugs. And here was a new miracle to be added to this strange armory of vials that doctors use. But Gibbon was far too eager upon his technical points to enter. Very keenly into my aspect of the question, it was on the seventh or eighth of August when he told me that the distillation that would decide his failure or success for a time was going forward as we talked, and it was on the tenth that he told me the thing was done and the new accelerator a tangible reality in the world.
I met him as I was going up the Sandhill Gate towards Folkestone. I think I was going to get my hair cut, and he came hurrying down to meet me. I suppose he was coming to my house to tell me at once of his success. I remember his eyes were unusually bright and his face flushed, and I noted even then the swifter clarity of his step. It's done, he cried and gripped my hand, speaking very fast. It's more than done. Come up to my house and see. Really, really, he shouted. Incredibly, come up and see. And it does twice. It does more, much more. It scares me. Come up and see the stuff. Taste it. Try it. It's the most amazing stuff on earth. He gripped my arm and, walking at such a pace that he forced me into a trot, went shouting with me up the hill. A whole sharabang full of people turned and stared at us in unison, after the manner of people in sharabangs. It was one of those hot, clear days that Folkestone sees so much of. Every colour incredibly bright, and every outline hard. There was a breeze, of course, but not so much breeze as sufficed under these conditions to keep me cool and dry. I panted for mercy. I'm not walking fast, am I? cried Gibbon, and slackened his pace to a quick march. You've been taking some of this stuff. I puffed. No, he said. At the utmost, a drop of water that stood in a beaker from which I had washed out the last traces of the stuff. I took some last night, you know, but that is ancient history now. And it goes twice, I said, nearing his door in grateful perspiration. It goes a thousand times, many thousand times, with a dramatic gesture. Flinging open his early English carved oak gate, "Phew," said I, and followed him to the door. "I don't know how many times it goes," he said with his latch key in his hand. "And you? It throws all sorts of lights on nervous physiology. It kicks the theory of vision into a perfectly new shape. Heaven knows how many thousand times. We'll try all that after." The thing is to try the stuff now. Try the stuff, I said as we went along the passage. Rather, said Gibbon, turning on me in his study. There it is in that little green phial over there, unless you happen to be afraid. I am a careful man by nature, and only theoretically adventurous. I was afraid, but on the other hand, there is pride. Well, I haggled. You say you've tried it. I've tried it, he said, and I don't look hurt by it, do I? I don't even look livery, and I feel. I sat down. Give me the potion, I said. If the worst comes to the worst, it will save having my hair cut, and that I think is one of the most hateful duties of a civilized man. How do you take the mixture? With water," said Gibbon, whacking down a carafe. He stood up in front of his desk and regarded me in his easy chair. His manner was suddenly affected by a touch of the Harley Street specialist. "It's rum stuff, you know," he said. I made a gesture with my hand. "I must warn you in the first place," 
as soon as you've got it down, to shut your eyes. And open them very cautiously in a minute or so's time. One still sees. The sense of vision is a question of the length of vibration, and not of multiple impacts. But there's a kind of shock to the retina, a nasty, giddy confusion, just at the time, if the eyes are open. Keep them shut. Shut, I said. Good. And the next thing is to keep still. Don't begin to whack about. You may fetch something a nasty rap if you do. Remember, you will be going several thousand times faster than you ever did before. Heart, lungs, muscles, brain, everything. And you will hit hard without knowing it. You won't know it, you know. You'll just feel as you do now. Only everything in the world will seem to be going ever so many thousand times slower than it ever went before. That's what makes it so juiced queer. Law, I said. And you mean... You'll see, said he, and took up a little measure. He glanced at the material on his desk. Glasses, he said, water, all here. Mustn't take too much for the first attempt. The little file glucked out its precious contents. Don't forget what I told you, he said, turning the contents of the measure into a glass in the manner of an Italian waiter measuring whiskey. Sit with eyes tightly shut, and in absolute stillness for two minutes, he said. Then you will hear me speak. He added an inch or so of water to the little dose in each glass. By the by, he said, don't put your glass down. Keep it in your hand, and rest your hand on your knee. Yes, so. And now, he raised his glass. The new accelerator, I said. The new accelerator, he answered. And we touched glasses and drank. And instantly, I closed my eyes. You know that blank non-existence, into which one drops when one has taken gas? For an indefinite interval, it was like that. Then I heard Gibbon telling me to wake up and I stirred and opened my eyes. There he stood, as he had been standing, glass still in hand. It was empty. That was all the difference. Well, said I, nothing out of the way? Nothing. A slight feeling of exhilaration, perhaps. Nothing more. Sounds? Things are still, I said. By Jove! Yes, they are still, except the sort of faint pat-patter, like rain falling on different things. What is it? Analyzed sounds, I think he said, but I am not sure. He glanced at the window. Have you ever seen a curtain before a window, fixed in that way before? I followed his eyes. And there was the end of the curtain, frozen as it were, corner high, in the act of flapping briskly in the breeze. No, said I, that's odd. And here, he said, 
and opened the hand that held the glass. Naturally, I winced, expecting the glass to smash. But so far from smashing, it did not even seem to stir. It hung, in mid-air, motionless. Roughly speaking, said Gibbon, an object in these latitude falls sixteen feet in the first second. The glass is falling sixteen feet in a second now. Only you see, it hasn't been falling yet for the hundredth part of a second. That gives you some idea of the pace of my accelerator. And he waved his hand round and round, over and under the slowly sinking glass. Finally, he took it by the bottom, pulled it down, and placed it very carefully on the table. Eh? He said to me and laughed. That seems all right, I said. And began very gingerly to raise myself from my chair. I felt perfectly well, very light and comfortable, and quite confident in my mind. I was going fast all over. My heart, for example, was beating a thousand times a second, but that caused me no discomfort at all. I looked out of the window, an immovable cyclist, head down. With a frozen puff of dust behind his driving wheel, scorched to overtake a galloping charabang that did not stir, I gaped in amazement at this incredible spectacle. Gibbon, I cried, "How long will this confounded stuff last?" Heaven knows," he answered. "The last time I took it, I went to bed and slept it off. I tell you, I was frightened." It must have lasted some minutes, I think. It seemed like hours, but after a bit, slows down rather suddenly, I believe. I was proud to observe that I did not feel frightened. I suppose because there were two of us. Shouldn't we go out? I asked. Why not? They'll see us. Not they. Goodness no. Why? We shall be going a thousand times faster than the quickest conjuring trick that was ever done. Come along. Which way shall we go? Window or door? And out the window we went. Assuredly, of all the strange experiences that I have ever had, or imagined, or read of other people having or imagining, that little raid I made with Gibbon on the Folkestone Lees. Under the influence of the new accelerator, was the strangest and maddest of all. We went out by his gate into the road, and there we made a minute examination of the statuesque passing traffic. The tops of the wheels and the legs of some of the horses in the charabang, the end of the whiplash, and the lower jaw of the conductor, who was just beginning to yawn, were perceptibly in motion. But the rest of the lumbering conveyance seemed still and quite noiseless, except for a faint rattling that came from one man's throat. And as parts of this frozen edifice, there were a driver, you know, a conductor, and eleven people. The effect as we walked about the thing began by being madly queer and ended by being disagreeable. There they were. 
people like ourselves, and yet not like ourselves, frozen in careless attitudes, caught in mid-gesture. A girl and a man smiled at one another, a leering smile that threatened to last forevermore. A woman in a floppy capoline rested her arm on the rail and stared at Gibbon's house with the unwinking stare of eternity. A man stroked his moustache like a figure of wax. Another stretched a tiresome stiff hand with extended fingers towards his loosened hat. We stared at them. We laughed at them. We made faces at them. And then a sort of disgust of them came upon us. And we turned away and walked around in front of the cyclist towards the Lees. Goodness! cried Gibbon suddenly. Look there! He pointed, and there at the tip of his finger, sliding down the air with wings flapping slowly, and the speed of an exceptionally languid snail, was a bee. And so we came out upon the Lees. There the thing seemed madder than ever. A band was playing in the upper stand, though all the sound it made for us was a low-pitched, wheezy rattle. A sort of prolonged last sigh that passed at many times into a sound like the slow, muffled ticking of some monstrous clock. Frozen people stood erect, strange, silent, self-conscious-looking dummies hung unstably in mid-stride promenading upon the grass. I passed close a little poodle dog suspended in the act of leaping, and I watched the slow movement of his legs as he sank to earth. Lord, look here, cried Gibbon, and we halted for a moment before a magnificent person in white faint-striped flannels, white shoes, and a Panama hat who turned back to wink at two gaily-dressed ladies he had passed. A wink studied with such leisurely deliberation as we could afford is an unattractive thing. It loses any quality of alert gaiety, and one remarks that the winking eye does not completely close, that under its drooping lid appears the lower edge of an eyeball and a little line of white. Heaven give me memory, said I, and I will never wink again. Or smile, said Gibbon, with his eye on the lady's answering teeth. It's infernally hot somehow, said I. Let's go slower. Oh, come along, said Gibbon. We picked our way among the bath chairs in the path. Many of the people sitting in the chairs seemed almost natural in their passive poses. But the contorted scarlet of the bandsman was not a restful thing to see. A purple-faced little gentleman was frozen in the midst of a violent struggle to refold his newspaper against the wind. There were many little evidences that all these people in their sluggish way were exposed to a considerable breeze, a breeze that had no existence so far as our sensations went. We came out and walked a little way from the crowd, and turned and regarded it. To see all that multitude changed, to a picture smitten rigid, as it were, into the semblance of realistic wax, was impossibly wonderful. 
It was absurd, of course, but it filled me with an irrational and exultant sense of superior advantage. Consider the wonder of it. All that I had said and thought and done since the stuff had begun to work in my veins had happened, so far as the world in general went, in the twinkling of an eye. The new accelerator, I began, but Gibbon interrupted me. There's that infernal old woman, he said. What old woman? Lives next door to me, said Gibbon. Has a lapdog that yaps. Gods, the temptation is strong. There is something very boyish and impulsive about Gibbon at times. Before I could expostulate with him, he had dashed forward, snatched the unfortunate animal out of visible existence, and was running with it violently towards the cliff of the Lees. It was most extraordinary. The little brute, you know, didn't bark or wriggle or make the slightest sign of vitality. It kept quite stiffly in the attitude of somnolent repose, and Gibbon held it by the neck. It was like running about with a dog of wood. Gibbon, I cried, put it down. Then I said something else. If you run like that, Gibbon, I cried, you'll set your clothes on fire. Your linen trousers are going brown as it is. He clapped his hand on his thigh and stood hesitating on the verge. Gibbon, I cried, coming up. Put it down. The heat is too much. It's our running so. Two or three miles a second. Friction of the air. What? he said, glancing at the dog. Friction of the air, I shouted. Friction of the air. Going too fast. Like meteorites and things. Too hot. And Gibbon. Gibbon! I'm all over prickling and a sort of perspiration. You can see people stirring slightly. I believe the stuff's working off. Put that dog down. Eh? he said. It's working off, I repeated. We're too hot and the stuff's working off. I'm wet through. He stared at me, then at the band, the wheezy rattle of whose performance was certainly going faster. Then, with a tremendous sweep of the arm, he hurled the dog away from him, and it went spinning upward, still inanimate, and hung at last over the grouped parasols of a knot of chattering people. Gibbon was gripping my elbow. By Jove, he cried. I believe it is. A sort of hot prickling. And, yes, that man's moving his pocket handkerchief. Perceptibly. We must get out of this sharp. But we could not get out of it sharply enough. Luckily, perhaps. For we might have run, and if we had run, should, I believe, almost certainly we should have burst into flames. You know, we had neither of us thought of that. But before we could even begin to run, the action of the drug had ceased. It was the business of a minute fraction of a second. The effect of the new accelerator passed like the drawing of a curtain, vanished in the movement of a hand. I heard Gibbon's voice in infinite alarm. Sit down, he said, 
and flopped down upon the turf at the edge of the leaves I sat, scorching as I sat. There is a patch of burnt grass there still where I sat down. The whole stagnation seemed to wake up as I did so. The disarticulated vibration of the band rushed together into a blast of music. The promenaders put their feet down and walked their ways. The papers and flags began flapping. Smiles passed into words. The winker finished his wink and went on his way complacently. And all the seated people moved and spoke. The whole world had come alive again. Was going as fast as we were, or rather, we were going no faster than the rest of the world. It was like slowing down as one comes into a railway station. Everything seemed to spin round for a second or two. I had the most transient feeling of nausea, and that was all. And the little dog, which had seemed to hang for a moment when the force of Gibbon's arm was expended, fell with a swift acceleration, clean through a lady's parasol. That was the saving of us, unless it was for one corpulent old gentleman in a bath chair. Who certainly did start at the sight of us, and afterwards regarded us at intervals with a darkly suspicious eye, and finally, I believe, said something to his nurse about us. I doubt if a solitary person remarked on our sudden appearance among them. Plop, we must have appeared abruptly. We ceased to smoulder almost at once, though the turf beneath me was uncomfortably hot. The attention of every one. Including even the amusements association band, which on this occasion, for the only time in its history, got all out of tune, was arrested by the amazing fact and the still more amazing yapping and uproar caused by the fact that a respectable overfed lapdog sleeping quietly to the east of the bandstand should suddenly fall through the parasol of a lady on the west. In a slightly singed condition, due to the extreme velocity of its movements through the air, in these absurd days too, when we are all trying to be psychic and silly and superstitious as possible, people got up and trod on other people. Chairs were overturned. The Lee's policeman ran. How the matter settled itself, I do not know. We were much too anxious to disentangle ourselves from the affair. And get out of the range of the eye of the old gentleman in the bath chair to make minute inquiries. As soon as we were sufficiently cool and sufficiently recovered from our giddiness and nausea and confusion of mind to do so, we stood up and, skirting the crowd, directed our steps back along the road below the Metropole towards Gibbon's house. But amidst the din, I heard very distinctly. The gentleman who had been sitting beside the lady of the ruptured sunshade, using quite unjustifiable threats and language to one of those chair attendants who have "Inspector" written on their caps. If you did not throw the dog, he said, "Who did?" The sudden return of movement and familiar noises, and our natural anxiety about ourselves. Our clothes were still dreadfully hot. And the fronts of the thighs of Gibbon's white trousers were scorched to a drabish brown, prevented the minute observations I should have liked to make on all these things. Indeed, I really made no observations of any scientific value on that return. The bee, of course, had gone. 
I looked for that cyclist, but he was already out of sight as we came into the upper Sandgate Road, or hidden from us by traffic. The Sherabang, however, with its people now all alive and stirring, was clattering along at a spanking pace, almost abreast of the nearer church. We noted, however, that the window sill on which we had stepped in getting into the house was slightly singed, and that the impressions of our feet on the gravelled path were unusually deep. So it was I had my first experience of the new accelerator. Practically, we had been running about and saying and doing all sorts of things in the space of a second or so of time. We had lived half an hour while the band played perhaps two bars. But the effect it had upon us was that the whole world had stopped for our convenient inspection. Considering all things, and particularly considering our rashness in venturing out of the house, the experience might certainly have been much more disagreeable than it was. It showed, no doubt, that Gibbon has still much to learn before his preparation is a manageable convenience. But its practicality it certainly demonstrated beyond old Cavill. Since that adventure, he has been steadily bringing its use under control, and I have several times, and without the slightest bad result, taken measured doses under his direction. Though I must confess, I have not yet ventured abroad again while under its influence. I may mention, for example, that this story has been written in one sitting, and without interruption, except for the nibbling of some chocolate, by its means. I began at six twenty-five, and my watch is very nearly at the minute past the half hour. The convenience of securing a long, uninterrupted spell of work in the midst of a day full of engagements cannot be exaggerated. Gibbon is now working at the qualitative handling of his preparation, with a special reference to its distinct effects upon different types of constitution. He then hopes to find a retarder with which to dilute the present rather excessive potency. The retarder will, of course, have the reverse effect to the accelerator. Used alone, it should enable the patient to spread a few seconds over many hours of ordinary time, and so maintain an apathetic inaction, a glacier-like absence of a clarity amidst the most animated or irritating surroundings. The two things together must necessarily work an entire revolution in civilized existence. It is like beginning our escape from that time garment of which Carlyle speaks. While this accelerator will enable us to concentrate ourselves with tremendous impact upon any moment or occasion that demands our uttermost sense and vigor, the retarder will enable us to pass in passive tranquility through infinite hardship and tedium. Perhaps I am a little optimistic about the retarder, which has indeed still to be discovered. But about the accelerator. There is no possible sort of doubt whatever. Its appearance upon the market in a convenient, controllable, and assimilable form 
is a matter of the next few months. It will be obtainable from all chemists and druggists in small green bottles at a high, but considering its extraordinary qualities, by no means excessive price. Gibbon's nervous accelerator, it will be called, and he hopes to be able to supply it in three strengths one in 200, one in 900, and one in 2000, distinguished by yellow, pink, and white labels respectively. No doubt, its use renders a great number of very extraordinary things possible. For, of course, the most remarkable, and possibly even criminal proceedings may be affected with impunity by thus dodging, as it were, into the intercies of time. Like all potent preparations, it will be liable to abuse. We have, however, discussed this aspect of the question very thoroughly, and we have decided that this is purely a matter of medical jurisprudence and altogether outside our province. We shall manufacture and sell the accelerator, and as for the consequences, we shall see. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jim. And we're going to talk about the new accelerator, a 1901 story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. No, <laughs> by H.G. Wells. We were talking about Arthur Conan Doyle before and comparing him to Wells, but uh, do you think he could have written this story? Um, it's conceivable. Uh, I just don't think he's a science. I don't think he's as science-minded as a lot of people think, because. I was reading uh, one of those, yeah, it was the Speckled Band, mm. you know, um, and and Holmes, he has Holmes say something like, "It's the it's the swamp adder, the most deadly snake in all of India." And there's no such snake, <laughs> like it just doesn't exist. And he's got baboons there, and yeah, technically there are baboons in in India, but they're not like the baboons described in the story. I don't think he, it might be that he did, he just sort of dashed those Sherlock Holmes stories off without any research. But I, I get the sense that Wells did, just really cared a lot more about science. Uh, well, I think with Conan Doyle, the example you cite, he might have been drawing off faulty sources. Because you have similar, um, uh, what's the word? Irregularity, shall we say, generously. In like mm-hmm. Stoker's Dracula. Which was purely from, you know, scholars have found the actual guidebooks that Stoker referred to, and uh, that you know that the the errors are in those, <laughs> the errors are in the sources. Mm. Um, well, I think Wells was much more of a. I think he was, um, he, he, as you say, I think he was deeper into science and was more likely to be reading scientific papers than reading books in the library. If you see what I mean, where I think mm. Doyle was more of um, we'll be doing sort of library research where Wells would probably know a bit more firsthand of the current mm. thinking of the day. I think uh, uh, Wells is a younger man at the time as well when he's writing this versus uh, Doyle, I, I guess, is a little older. It seems that way to me anyways. Um, but uh, it, it's curious. There's a lot of 
good science in this story and a lot of like glaring errors. <laughs> but I was thinking about like the time period in which it was written. If it's written in like middle of uh, 1901 or you know 1900, mm. there's still no there's still no objects other than bullets or cannons that are actually going faster than the speed of sound. Um, but he, he describes like, uh, I think one of the most remarkable things in the story is, is that he's describing the effect of heat on, uh, fast moving objects. Yes. Pretty, yeah. Pretty well. I mm. mean, that's pretty amazing. But then I was thinking, how can they communicate with each other? <laughs> because if they're speaking at the speed of sound, uh, even if their voices were high pitched, Right, uh, because of their, <laughs> their being high on this drug, um, it would still take some time to uh, to travel between the two men. Um, and you could probably work out the math uh, on it if they're actually going a thousand times faster than normal. How long it would take to just go, you know, sound to travel a few. Mm, that's interesting. It's also if the sound was being produced at a, a super high speed by the human larynx. Mm-hmm. Um, but it couldn't break would it be on a wavelength uh, <laughs> they could hear anyway <laughs> and 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 actually i started thinking about that because his description of how the band is the music the band is playing mm-hmm. is actually an amazingly good i think rendition of what we can do now you know with audacity is you know <laughs> take a sound clip and slow it down by a thousand and just listen to it and you say that's really alien sounding um, but of, how could how could Wells have access to any kind of technology that could do that? The closest thing would be like Edison cylinders or something, and they're they're not going to play back uh, anything close to that, would they? Um, no, but I think you'd have the um, with the early Edison machines; they're all hand cranked, and so you would you would have that experience of um, the motor winding down and you're getting the speed slowing yeah. down. <laughs> yeah. You're getting the idea enough yeah. for him to get the idea of vocal distortion. I mean, imagine that was the the bane of Edison cylinders it was not just they're only six minutes in length and <laughs> you're always replacing them, but it's kind of you have to wind them up like you know. Um, I think I think with the with the dialogue, it's one of those it probably did occur to Wells because he does have the detail of various mm-hmm. sounds they hear being distorted, but it's one of those in order to have dialogue in the story, you have to kind of. <laughs> Um, let it go a bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other curious thing is is what is the effect of gravity? Because one of the things they they strangely say is, "Shall we go out the door? Or shall we go out the window?" And I said, "Let's go out the window." And I'm like, "Wait a second. Does that mean like they can just, you know, when they hop out the window, they like, how do they reach the ground? Are they is the what is the effect of gravity when you can reduce? It should uh, be the same, right? Yeah. Well, I assumed they're kind of just on the on the uh, ground floor or the first floor, as you'd say. Well, why would States. they go out the window? I don't know. I think it's just <laughs> kind of. I wonder about the kind of. I wonder maybe it was kind of like they were like um, what are some called French windows? They're like kind of like patio doors, Uh-oh. maybe. Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. But I think there is the line though that then fox me about having um those footprints in the flower bed. And a scuff mm-hmm. on the silver that climbed out. Um, 
I don't know. I, I wondered about that, and particularly I did the reason that. Why are they just going out the window? Is it kind of it's just laziness? Oh, we can't bother the hallway. Or maybe they think if they go out the window, they won't encounter the housekeeper. Or <laughs> maybe, yeah. I don't know. Uh, it is. A, it is a weird detail. Or it could be just that I did initially wonder whether it was effect of the drug, and there's a kind of a, just a bit of a giddiness, a sort of slight oh, drunkenness to it, of kind of. <laughs> What the hell, you know? Well, why not go out the window? You know, we're not bound by convention or ordinary speeds, you know. Yeah, if there is something, you know, chuck it out the window, you know, it's like, it's, uh, it's, it's a much more casual thing to do. It seems like a, I mean, one of the things that this reminded me of, uh, not the first time, but in re-listening to it and reading it for the podcast, I was thinking, like, actually, it's quite similar. It's kind of like a sketch of The Invisible Man mm. uh, in that it, 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 I didn't notice it at first at all, but actually, it's a very sinister story. There's a lot of uh, scariness in the coming because one, one of the things is Gibberine is... He's quite—he's quite an asshole. He, he's killing a dog, basically. <laughs> yeah. It comes off very comically, but well, this is—I don't know—is is, is, well, it's like part of the drunkenness of the drug, the drug that leads him to like, let's go the window. <laughs> you know, it kind of—it it, makes—it's almost a hint that this traveling or perceiving things at this speed makes people slightly impulsive. <laughs> And also, also remember when they see these people and they see, you know, the eyelid closing and the smile flashing and the wink, right? They, they sort of make faces at them for a while. Uh, I can see them sort of dancing around and saying, oh, my dear, you know, sort of thing. Um, you've dropped your hanky and grab her hanky and all. You, you can sort of see them doing that. It's not explicitly referred to what they do, but it sounds like, um, they're, Doing sort of naughty things, and then even Gibberin or Gibberin's described as a sort of a schoolboy or something like that. But but then uh, they become uh, resentful, not resentful, superior. That's sort of alienated, really, isn't it? By the yes, way. they don't recognize these other people as being on their level of humanity. I said they are just living statues to them, and. I'm, I'm asking, when I first read it, I was surprised there wasn't more mischief. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's more of a they, sketch than yeah. anything else. So they do teeter on the edge of that kind of, hey, we, you know, we could take this guy's hat and put it on somebody else, and that'll confuse him. <laughs> and I, I know, like, this, this story's been reworked many times by other, or this, this idea's been reworked many times by other authors. Um, you know, Star, Star Trek has done, mm. Their week episode on it. I th- actually, actually, I heard that there was a, a Voyager episode that did the same thing, which I somehow managed to thankfully avoid. <laughs> um, but the typically the, what they do with this is, you know, they rob banks. Or, I think there was a Twilight Zone episode uh, where they they used it to rob banks. Yes, uh, yes, that sort of thing. But it, it, it's it's really the Ring of Gaiji story again, right? It's it's. The Invisible Man, uh, he's got a power that allows him to do things that no one else can see, and he, he uses it for evil, uh, just as Gaijis did when he finds that magic ring that can turn him invisible, and I guess as Tolkien does with the Invisible Ring as well. 
Yeah, so with the the one ring, that's more of a, a corrupting magical power. Whereas I think it's kind of this is very much like the Invisible Man. Of it's kind of once the yeah, I mean you could see um, <laughs> the good professor having a crime spree once he realizes the potential of his new accelerator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, Wells does allude to this in the closing paragraphs which I find is interesting and mm-hmm. he's kind of well well, that's a, that's a matter for the courts <laughs> right in in fact um, yeah, they were saying could we use this in duels would that be okay oh that's <laughs> up to the seconds right it's like um, mind you I think that's before he's actually developed the accelerator like it takes a year for him to do it um, and he's just talking about theoretical possibilities what he can mm-hmm. do with it um, and he was thinking at, you know, two or three times speed. Now, the, my initial reaction to reading this story, uh, was that it's a story about, um, methamphetamines, <laughs> right? It's, it's about, you know, increasing your mental activity, increasing your, uh, hyperactivity in a short period of time. Uh, or I think he said, you know, you could use, if you were a politician, you could use it as a, uh, stimulant so that you could, you know, negotiate faster, you know, <laughs> drop a, a, a bill faster so that you get your job done faster. And that, th- those are all sort of positive, uh, uses. But other than, other than, um, what would a society that had this drug available be like? I mean, that, wouldn't that be the strangest thing ever? Wouldn't there have to be cops? Well, uh, they'd have to have a stronger solution <laughs> than the criminals. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's a couple of things going on here. I think, on one hand, um, what this story brings to light is a little-known fact of Victorian society, is that, um, you know, back then, all the drugs we've got now that are illegal, they had, that were, that were perfectly legal. Mm-hmm. You could go get them from your local pharmacist. And Victorian gentlemen did experiment with them. Um, they used to have mescaline parties, and you know it was called dry whiskey was the euphemism for it. Wow! Uh, Victoria Jumbo, you know, they experimented heavily with opium and cannabis, you know, and um, to the point we do actually have some useful clinical data from it that you know it's impossible to overdose on cannabis because Victorian gentlemen tried it often eating it by the pound and then falling asleep for a fortnight literally <laughs> you know they, it's a little known but you know it's kind of you do see it as well in Alice in Wonderland with kind of the um, the, the, you know, the potions that you know grow you and shrink you this is kind of you know idea that you know um, uh, pharmacy pharmacological techniques were like a whole new frontier of where, you know, once uh, by what, 19, the early 1900s when this was written, kind of, you know, the shockwaves of evolution have settled down and it's kind of, well, why not, you know, consciousness itself be something, you know, we tweak and rebuild in our own image or for our own purpose. And what's interesting now, it's kind of, re- you know, we come from a, a drug-fearing culture of it's kind of it sounds appalling kind of you know mm-hmm. it's, 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 this is like you know the worst kind of crystal meth available that uh, the good professor has invented mm-hmm. and you know we instantly see the huge amount of crime addiction that would would follow in the wake of such a drug being available the absolute mayhem it would cause mm-hmm. whereas wells has a much more positive 
and um, optimistic attitude that you know, this will be something that will be used by a gentleman like himself, just a couple of drops, so I can, you know, knock out a short novel this afternoon. Although, <laughs> oh, I noticed, yeah, he actually, he says he wrote the story under the influence, right? Mm. Uh, and he said it only took me half an hour, so it probably took like half a second, right? <laughs> To write to write it in real time, but uh, it wouldn't. You light the paper on fire with a pen, or the typewriter would, would start melting. <laughs> well, you'd have to take it easy, wouldn't you? Considering a, a slight run will set you on fire. <laughs> oh, uh, that's a very interesting, uh, yeah, take. On, I mean, one of the things that's strange is, that, is the story ends with. Uh, a retarder being the next thing, right? So mm. instead of being, and notice he calls it the new accelerator, which made me think that there was an older accelerator. Well, I think there may well have been, because I mean, you know, this was the golden age of a, a pharmacy, if you will, where, you know, any Tom, Dick or Harry could, you know, lash up some concoction and sell it as a miracle cure. Mm-hmm. Um, like cocaine or something. Well, that's, yeah, original, you know, Coca-Cola was a health tonic packed with mm-hmm. cocaine um, and you know you could buy you know they they sold um baby soothing tinctures that were packed full of heroin right. uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't believe there was radium condoms um, radium pills that are all obviously monstrously poisonous there's all kinds of things that you know now sound horrendous on mm-hmm. the market and you know anyone could you know Mr. So-and-so's universal pick-me-up. And, you yeah. know, I don't know enough about it, but I'm willing to bet we're around, this, around the time this was written, there was probably a vogue for such tonic drinks. And mm-hmm. people, you know, uh, yeah, there probably was drink. an accelerator on the market. It is a drink, and it's green. Mm. <laughs> well, Which, as good potions should be. <laughs> yes, uh, but... It's 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 curious. Like the so there's going to be a retarder, right? Presumably that'd be red. Then <laughs> 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 there's a yellow to bring you back to the l- level, you know. Uh, but w- I didn't understand. Like I, I I understand what the uses of the accelerator are, right? You can get a whole bunch of work work done in a short amount of time. Um, I've never tried, uh, you know. The there's Ritalin I think is is good for people who are trying to study right mm. they're trying to cram a whole bunch of information into their head and it gives uh, I think Simpsons made fun of it by calling it a drug called Focus In <laughs> that's right <laughs> yes yeah. focus <laughs> focus mm. very carefully on one subject um, but what would the I mean I I know there are re, uh, downers in drugs. But what is the purpose of a retarder? Like it, it said, it said something like, "The reason we would need this is because you're at a meeting, or you're meeting with an aunt or something, and you don't like her, so you <laughs> just like become a glacier." <laughs> like, doesn't that make it worse? Well, I suppose it makes um, the time pass actually more quickly for you. <laughs> Because it's slowing you down, but time's passing at an ordinary speed, <laughs> and so you can get through these. You know, a tedious wait can be over in a matter of minutes to your perception. <laughs> yeah, and not too long ago, I did a show on um, another Wells story uh, about a 
a man who falls asleep for uh, almost 200 years or just over 200 years. And he was mixing um, various uh, sleeping agents because he couldn't sleep. So he was trying to get something that would allow him to sleep. And I guess that this is the same time period when we are getting uh, drugs that can make you wake up and perk you up and uh, bring you down and all that stuff. I, I know that um, that amphetamines are actually discovered in the 1880s, not uh, not later. It's surprising. I guess they weren't practically used uh, for everything we use them for now, but... Well, I say, I think it was only the, towards the 20th century they got to be refined sufficiently to be um, of wide purposes, because I think it's I think it's kind of the Second World War where they'd really sort of perfect sure. amphetamines because that, that's when they, you know, both the Allies and the Axis powers are actually, you know, giving the troops chocolate bars laced with amphetamines to keep wow. them going. Um, I know that the, the pilots were all dosed. Yeah, well, these do the troops as well. They used to say they have these chocolate, chocolate bars that are uh, laced with it. And that's your go pills. You've been yeah. hiking. For a week and a half, but we we got to fight this battle now. Take your go pill. Mm. Uh, they still do as well. Um, um, I think what else going to say? I think the other thing about the the uh, retarder is it's kind of I get a kind of a bit of a sense of food of the gods sort of um, vibe here. It's kind of that it's kind of you know he, humankind invents something that will change it, but then you need something else to restore the status quo. And it's kind of would much actually end up changing once you've got a retarder and an accelerator. In the right. same way, it's kind of in Food of the Gods. It's kind of, yes, we, you know, a scientist will invent this miracle growth agent, you know, and create boom food, grow giant chickens and giant plants. But then it's in the food chain and people are getting giant as well. So the benefit of having a giant chicken right. <laughs> has been lost <laughs> because you've got giant people eating it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So new stability, new stability to the uh, situation. Um, yeah, it, it's it, it it's it makes much more sense that we would write about a new accelerator than a new glacier, <laughs> you know, <laughs> glacierizing sort of thing. Although maybe that's what the other the, what that novel is is about is you know slowing down and uh, if it could slow down your metabolism in the same way that this one speeds up your metabolism. Um, it's it it's very science fictional is is what I'm thinking. It, he, it's curious that it is such a sh- sort of brief sketch. I think it's because um, he's doing just like in the Invisible Man. He knows how optics work, so he knows that the Invisible Man would be blind because he's got yeah. no uh, shroud over his eyes. He can't he can't actually see anything. But in the same way here, I think it's it's done sort of as a it's just what Wells does is he he takes people, puts them in a, a hypothetical situation to tell us about people, not to tell us the science, how it affects people, not just isn't it curious that we could imagine this situation. It's it seems to be like um, one one of the lines that sticks with me is that he says that uh, that you could uh, a minister could dose his assistant. <laughs> dose himself is like you could make your slaves work faster. Mm. You could make your workers in your factory work faster. 
you could make your soldiers work fast. I mean, he doesn't say soldiers, but the implication is, is, uh, is there. And, uh, the other, uh, thing is, is Professor Gibbern, Gibbern, is how, is that how we pronounce it? I just it Gibbon, yes. Gibbon, yeah. I just, so I, I wonder if it could, should be gibbering, but. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I thought it was, I mean, if you're high on ex- acceleration drugs, it might, <laughs> it might sound that way. But he, uh, he's described as being, uh, Mef- uh, looking like Mephistopheles, right? Like the devil. Yeah. Or, uh, a demon, anyways. And, you know, he, he's very sinister in that respect. And when he sees that, uh, neighbor's barking dog, he, he is basically murdering that dog. <laughs> it's very sinister in the same way that, um, the main character of the Invisible Man, I'm trying, blanking on his name. Griffin. Griffin, Griffin, right. Griffin is, he is a monster. Um, there he doesn't have anybody, uh, like our narrator, you know, to ta- sort of tamp him down a little bit. Mm. Uh, but literally they catch on fire almost, right? Like, <laughs> this is very, um, sinful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's gonna put you in hell. You're gonna burn in hell, you know. Uh, well, that's the thing with Mestopheles, because like in Faust, you know, Mestopheles, you know, grants Faust all these, you know, wondrous powers to hmm. um, summon the dead and what have you. And it's kind of here, Professor Gibbon with his accelerator is a he's a truly Mestophelian figure because hmm. he's, you know, giving the world this substance which will grant it great power. Um, and also the power for great mischief and harm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, this is quite, you know, good natured and it's kind of, you know, um. It, yeah, it seems light, lighthearted, but the sinister elements are there. Definitely. It's kind of, on one hand, it is kind of, it's, the dog is comical, but at the same time, it's kind of like, you have that element of Welsh's and Raiders, but like, given, which, what on earth do you'd stop it, man? You know, that's, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's an annoying yappy dog, but. Yeah, the narrator, I, I assumed it was supposed to be Wells. Mm. It doesn't say who the narrator is, but um, he seems to be, uh, like Wells, he's interested in science. And um, So in the, uh, the, there's two illusions. I, I mentioned this before the podcast. Mm. There's two illusions in the, that I can identify in the, story, one near the beginning, where he's described as looking Mephistophelian, and that his image was in uh, in the Strand magazine in late 1899. Um, so I looked that up. We actually found uh, there is Mephist- uh, an actor portraying Mephistopheles in, in that volume. But also, uh, Henry James is in there. Uh, both are illustrated, and both, you know, they're not complete. <laughs> Henry James does not look like Mephistopheles, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but um, they were rivals, so it might be a jab. It's hard to say who he's, who, <laughs> what he's doing there. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the name Gibburn is not like a normal common name, as far as I could tell. No, it's an unusual name. It's kind of, um, it has the ring. It's a good name for a mad scientist. Yeah, it, it, like gibbering magic. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then at the end, when he's talking about the, the retarder, um, he has a very curious description. And I wanna, I wanna try and under, 
understand what that's about. So he he mentions Carlisle. Um, did you spot that? Uh, I sent it to you as a tweet. Um, yes, I have it open here. <laughs> okay, so what was the what's the name of the story? Uh, the Sartorius. Sartorius, yeah, Sartorius. Uh, what is it? Sartorisartus. Rosartus. Mm. Okay, so this is. I, I was trying to understand what it what what he's referring to. Um, there it is. So it, it's meaning tailor retailored. It's very um, it's a it's kind of a novel uh, from 1836 by Thomas Carlyle, and in it there's a a metaphor that's used throughout. I mean, it's in in the title as well that everything that is clothing, all the things that are what we see are actually just clothing. Everything symbolic, mm. um, and that is literally uh, quoted here, or he's, he uses that as a response here. Language is called the garment of thought. The garment of thought, right? Ah, mm. uh, here it is. He says the sudden return of our movement and familiar noises and our, exa- our natural anxiety about ourselves. Our clothes were still dreadfully hot. Okay, so no, that's not it, but the, there's the garment of thought, right? Uh, is there burning? Here it is. The retarder will, of course, have the reverse effect of the accelerator. Used alone, it should enable the patient to spread a few seconds over many hours of ordinary time. And so, to maintain an apathetic inaction, a glacier-like absence of alacrity amidst the most animated and irritating surroundings. The two things together. I, I mean, I can see the use of this at the airport. You know. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Definitely want to drop one of these tabs. Mm. Um, the two things together must necessarily work an entire revolution in civilized existence. That is the accelerator and the retarder. It is the beginning of our escape from that time garment of which Carlyle speaks. And so that's the entire uh, illusion. But it's very curious the the allusion to this ah, this time garment uh the it's it's a german idealist philosophy it's a so this novel um sartor resartus is a editor of the magazine that the story was originally or the the novels originally published in talking about this book that he's reviewing um, so it's very meta and also considered existential. Um, the main character is Diogenes Tufelstrock, uh, meaning God-born devil dung. <laughs> <laughs> and he is the professor of things in general at uh, a university um, and writer of a book of German idealist philosophy called Clothes, Their Origin and Influence. And that is the content of the novel is, is the editor trying to get uh, to grips with the, with the content of the story. So it's almost like the philosophy of clothes holds that meaning is to be derived from the phenomena of continually shifting over history as cultures reconstruct themselves, changing factions, power structures, and faith systems. So it's like, 
we put on a new garment, right? And that changes us. Uh, I guess that's, you know, you, you put on a lab coat and you become more scientific. Mm. You put on a dress, you become more feminine, maybe. <laughs> um, but also, uh, uh, it's, it's not just figurative clothing. It's like, um, we're living in Victorian times. We do Victorian things these way. Mm. And so these drugs are kind of like a way of saying this will fundamentally change how we act. Um, and I think that's really interesting because I don't normally think of clothing as being a metaphor for, for all of this. But actually, that's, you know, you see a policeman in uniform. That's symbolic. It's not, he's not in there because he needs to keep his, his uh, skin dry, right? Well, this is it. I mean, it's kind of it's something kind of we've actually sort of forgotten. But um, in earlier periods, it's kind of um, dress codes were a lot more important. You could sure. you, you could tell a carpenter from a baker purely by the type of hat they wore. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of um, different professions had their own dress, not just much as a uniform, but it was a signifier to say, you know, I'm a carpenter, I'm a mason. Um, <laughs> whatever. Uh, you're saying with the industrial revolution, where we moved to bigger societies and everyone was just generic factory workers, that this sort of this is kind of you know uh, a profession having a set dress sort of seemed to disappear. Well, they did sort of linger, kind of you know like that gentleman who worked like you know in the stock market in the city in <laughs> London wore bowler hats, and you know right. there's these echoes of it here and there still. Like and obviously the chef's hat still remains to this day. Sure. But there was Although, a whole roast of lots of others that are still there. They've gone, you know? Yeah, um there was a I was reading a book about uh Daniel Ellsberg and he whenever he goes to a protest where he's gonna get arrested, he always puts on a suit. Doesn't normally wear a suit, but when he's going to get arrested he always puts on a suit because it shows that even uh, non-rabble-rousing uh, hippies, you know, anarchists can get arrested. Yeah, yeah. Old gentlemen wearing suits can get arrested mm. because this is the, you know, the the philosophy of violence it, it will affect anybody who's mm. it, it, not just the, those, you know, rabble-rousing hippies. <laughs> and that's very, it's a symbolic, uh, it's why, you know, when you see things in real life on on television or in photographs, it's much different than if you just hear about it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting reference, and I think it's a it's powerful. But without knowing the illusion, I mean, pre- presumably a lot of people would recognize that illusion at the time. Don't, would you think? Um, probably. I mean, uh, Carlyle was a big. A bigger name, shall we say, than he is now in intellectual circles. Right. Whereas, um, you know, Nat, um, now he's uh, just another of those old dudes. But, you know, <laughs> he was uh, more of a, a respected authority on things because Carlisle and he was widely known and discussed. I mean, I think there's a, there's a reference to him in um, um, a W.F. Harvey story, The Clock at the End, uh, where the narrator is offered a clock like one he had a spooky experience with, and he declined. He said, opting instead for the complete works of Carlyle. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's kind of... I'm trying to think of what an analogue would be. I mean, about 20 years ago, it would have been, say, maybe like George Bernard Shaw or 
Bertrand okay. Russell. But, you know, I yeah. think when Wells right and Carlyle was that kind of, you know, overarching intellectual sort of figure that everyone mm-hmm. would know. But the way he uses the illusion that the, the wonderful is time garment. Mm-hmm. You get that kind of sense of kind of being bound by time and constricted, like like a bad fitting suit or mm-hmm. uncomfortable school uniform. You know, it's kind of well, it's true though. I mean, I, I think that you know that that example of of you know you've got an, an exam you need to study for, you have to slow down time so you can get ready for it. That's certainly something we see today. People are using uh, drugs to do, and there's also. And, you know, yeah, sitting at the airport waiting for the goddamn airplane to be fixed, whatever it is, um, you do want to speed time up. Uh, but then you need you need to keep do- uh, keep dosing yourself. I mean, it, it it's strange to think of this little story about drugs being so uh, impactful, but drugs are our perception of the world, right? The well, uh, this is it without perception. That's all we actually really have is a perception of the world. And that's right. It's kind of, I mean, yes, you can argue about the objective reality of the cosmos exactly, but to you, your perception is your world. And, right. you know, if you take certain substances, you can radically alter and uh, impact that. So what, what if, if you've got, I'm just trying to, he put that retarder in at the end. Not, I don't think just as a, you know, I've got this, now I'm going to have that. But I think, you know, he, he's letting us work out stuff in our own heads. This is why I like Wells is he doesn't just, you know, he doesn't tell you, uh, Griffin is evil. He shows you Griffin is evil. Mm-hmm. And then you, you start thinking about it. It's not, you think, Oh, cool story about an invisible man. And then you realize he's a monster, <laughs> right? And that, that feeling is strange. So in here, we've got this response to all these people who are, you know, incredibly slow, that as uh, they perceive it as being a uh worthy of contempt what would the effect of being under the retarder be like to the blur of movement around you be like would it be like would it give you a, the opposite feeling respect probably not you would probably see you have a similar like that sense of alienation though you definitely be alienated it's probably um of the two, the retarder is probably one that have least mischievous capabilities. <laughs> well, certainly, but it makes me think of like you know, as you as you get older, time speeds up for you. Mm. Uh, um, and when I look at younger people, so they're doing their thing. Ah, yes, they're making all those mistakes, right? All those mistakes. <laughs> um, and it's sort of like a genial um. A genial uh, putting up with it sort of feeling is what I I think is like that's how that's how kids are you know um, and then I mean it, it'd be like um, you say ah oh, you know it, it, you sort of get that historical feeling of looking at the news when you when you read a lot of history and you look at the news and you say ah more of the same <laughs> it's not like. It's not like there's a, uh, I gotta go out and do something about this. It's more like, ah, yes, more of the same. Um, it'll all sort of, or sort itself out in the end. Sort of, um. It's that sort of, you know, wisdom slash cynicism of age where you get that kind yeah. of point of, it doesn't matter who you vote for, the government always gets in. Yes, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, and you have that thing of, you know, I mean, I think, you know, we have a, a genial 
view of the youth and their speed being at our age, but maybe give another 20 years, that might start to enter resentment <laughs> and an, an annoyance. Sour, of, uh, <laughs> sour up. <laughs> bloody kids. Yeah. Youth, youth is wasted on the young, that is true. Back in my day, yes. <laughs> like they were that. much slower. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like that now. <laughs> uh, the thing is, it was slower in my in, when I was when I was young. You know. How so? Well, if I wanted to rec- hear a particular, say, oh, record sorry. album, I would have to, A, probably save up for several weeks to get it, then maybe have to travel to another city to actually find a shop that stocked it, <laughs> and, you know, then I would play it to death because I'd bought it, even if it was shite, and I'd try my best to like it if I'd made a bad purchase, <laughs> because right. there was time and investment. Whereas right. now you can you can get hold of pretty much anything within a couple of clicks, yeah, instantaneously. You know, you know? yeah. I, I I think that there's something to that. Well, there's a lot of talk about the addiction that people have to their phones and their uh, their screens. You know, um, I hear about it on the radio. I hear people talking about it. I see it. I hear my I dad telling me about it that I've got right. it. <laughs> it's certainly. But I'm thinking that it's not like human nature has changed, right? It's, the humans are pretty much the same. But um, we didn't say, you know, he's got a book addiction. He's always looking at that goddamn page. Right? <laughs> um, so there's that. But I think it's it's the increased access is kind of like a way of speeding up in the same way that you're saying, you know, if you want something, uh, some book, and you have the money, you can buy it on Amazon like that. But well, Equally, that if you was want not to know something, you can just hit Google or Wikipedia, and you can you can find out that fact quicker than it would take to, for you to remember it. I mean, that's something I find. I mean, I've got I've you know um, people have said to me like you're like a goddamn elephant, you never forget anything, um, or you're like Wikipedia with a beard. But even <laughs> so, I find you know there's often like some like a name of a book or a movie or some little factoid I'm trying to. Re- Remember, I know now I can get it quicker by consulting the net than actually right. the process of recalling it, which is kind of strange. Way, and yeah, a diary used to be, you know, your way of keeping your your thoughts in an external. Uh, it's like an external hard drive for your your mind, right? Mm. Um, if you lose your diary, you lose that those memories that you've written down that allow you to forget them, right? And in the same way, you know, I don't know anybody's phone number anymore or email address. (laughs) I barely know my own. Mm. But if if I have this device, it it seems to me it's not as sinister as it appears. You know, everybody's addicted to their screens. They're looking down. Um, That's just people thinking, right? That's Mm. people accessing part of their mind. Um, So it it certainly appears, the clothing of it (laughs) makes it appear that we are uh, carrying hand mirrors around, you know, <laughs> uh, staring at our own hand mirrors, and certainly the selfie is is sort of that <laughs> exemplified. But it's not. I don't think it's as sinister as all that because I think it's just more of it's it's just exposing one part of human nature. Well, the thing is, like, what were people doing before? That was dead time for them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's a. It wasn't as good, obviously, because we've, we, we, no, clearly, because we like our phones. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so, well, I mean, I know it's kind of, it's, it's wonderfully handy because it means you can actually, while you, in it, what will be a dead situation in a waiting room? 
That's are waiting right. for a train, you can actually, you know, That's the retarder right there. You can get on and do something. You know what I mean? And uh, exactly, or entertain yeah. yourself, or speak to someone. Uh, angry Birds or mm. whatever. Oh, Flappy Bird. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I think it's only a, to me. It's only like a problem where, like, you're in a social situation and everyone's ignoring each other. It's like you know, you're like meeting up in a pub or a party and everyone's looking at the phones when they could be. You're at somewhere I, where the point is to be interacting. That's when the line crosses and uh, um, it, the screen becomes a retarder or an accelerator in the wrong kind of way. Yeah, you definitely feel it. But I also find that often it's a point of of uh, connection. So people, um, you know, they go off, they do their weekly business, then they meet up for, you know, dinner on Friday or whatever. One of the things they're doing with that phone is saying, hey, have you seen this picture I took? Right. Yeah. And there's yeah, sure. messaging that picture or just holding the phone up so that the other person can see it. Um, that's a way of connecting to those other people. It's not I mean, if you want to look at it cynically, it makes us we're all going to be, you know, in our own little worlds. I'm, I guess we are that way, but it doesn't seem necessarily sinister. But certainly if you if you get the etiquette wrong, which people were getting wrong before phones as well. Um, it could feel like you're, you know, getting ignored. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's one of those, it's a new technology and new technologies require new social protocols. Um, I mean, I mean, I know because kind of, I have a late adopter of the mobile phone because it used to irritate me no end. Mm-hmm. And I'd be sort of, you know, out on a Friday night at the pub and everyone else is sat around on their phones and then I'd, you know, texting away and I'd be so making sarcastic remarks about, you know, one day be able to talk on these things, <laughs> you know. Um, but that was kind of, you know, a lot of people got, a, you know, a bit obsessed with, with that to the point it was in the way. But I think, you know, as time's gone on, it's kind of people are, are better for doing that now. Um I think that was, you know, part of the, the gimmick factor of the new technology. Now it's settled down. Mm-hmm. And generally now, if I'm out in a social situation, most people's phones are away and they, yeah. only, they only come out to show you, show you a picture or play you mm-hmm. a bit of music or, or, you know, oh, you need to get this app. That will help you out. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's stabilized. I agree. <laughs> um, um, you might know a little bit about this. I, I was thinking about this while reading the story again. And that was um, the effect of gin on the UK. Like the, there was like a giant uh, when it when it hit when gin hit the UK or whatever it was called back then. Uh, there was like everybody was soused, right? Yep. <laughs> um, and I, I know that there are still people drinking alcohol in, in the UK, but it wasn't like it was then. It was it was much uh, like when alcohol hit. Uh, the native people of North America, everybody got drunk, right, all the time, or at least a good chunk of the population were drunk all the time. And it, I think the effect of any new clothing or what, you know, technology or whatever it is, it, it needs to sort of work itself through and not in like individual people, but in a culture there, there needs to be like laws to stabilize it eventually, you know, or or maybe the opposite, no laws, and then later on, after we've dealt with how, how it works out, laws. It seems to go in waves, like whenever there's a new techno- technological, especially with drugs like alcohol or 
um, uh, tobacco, right? Or coffee. Well, listen, yeah, I mean, I currently now there's, um, all these new designer drugs, which are so new, there's no legislation against them. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, there's, it doesn't seem to be a huge problem, but at the same time, there's lots of scaremongering articles going, this is terrible, what are we going to do about it? And mm-hmm. the scientists and doctors are going, well, well, we don't know enough about them to do anything about it, you know. Yeah. Can you just quit hollering and drawing people's attention to it? Until, mm-hmm. <laughs> because you're just fueling interest in it now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and like, I think like, there is always yeah. kind of, I think with any sort of new developed technological veg development that hits society, there's always kind of a, a a bit of a sort of a fever and a faddishness to having it and trying it or doing it or whatever. And but equally that goes hand in hand with um about an instant backlash of other people going down with this sort of thing. Careful now. Will someone think of the children? <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, guaranteed. And uh, you know, you get it with all new technologies. It's kind of you know comic books came out. Didn't yeah. take very long before these were rotting people's brains. T V okay. we'll all end up with square eyes. Um, you, you know, video games, we're all going to turn into snipers. You know, it just rolls on and on and on. And, you know, mobile phones, we're all going to be speaking in text speak and the English language is dead. You know, oh. you always get this in, instant, it's like a backlash, but it's quicker than that. It's almost a simultaneous negative reaction to a new technology. Yeah. It's an immune reaction almost, yeah. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, it's curious because uh, the thing is, is I was listening to uh, a Freakonomics podcast. They were talking about uh, if if alcohol and marijuana had been discovered today, wh- which would be the first to get uh, outlawed? Mm. And it seems like marijuana totally wouldn't be. <laughs> it would be alcohol because there's a lot more um, people using alcohol today that cause more problems it's more health hazard you know uh than alcohol than marijuana apparently um etc etc the thing is is there's they're also saying that well one of the reasons we shouldn't outlaw alcohol other than we've tried and it doesn't work right that temperance is a curious i i think temper the temperance movement is actually a response to women finally having some power (laughs) <laughs> no, like when women start to get power, suddenly we've got a new uh, uh, movement happening. I, I guess it, temperance was even bigger in the States than it was in Canada and the UK. Uh, but they they outlawed it, right? It didn't work that well. No, and, no. Um, I mean, it's, it's curious because it's kind of, I mean, I think it was because alcoholism, say, we, I think it was always kind of historically a bit more of a lid on it because the the poorer people and people who are demographically having a bad time and are more likely to want to become <laughs> abusers of alcohol. Yeah, they, only had, they only really had access to, to you know, to, to ales and beers. Mm-hmm. Um, spirits were expensive and you know, limited to the upper classes, whereas like, gin was the great leveller. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's then it's, it becomes a huge social problem uh, when you've got you know a very powerful drink on the market and uh, it's available for everyone for pennies, mm-hmm. literally for pennies. Yeah. Whereas it, I mean I find it interesting we have this sort of temperance backlash because alcohol for a lot of for centuries was the safe drink. Absolutely. I mean it's something people don't realise, but you know if you go back to medieval time, 
what you're going to be drinking most of the day isn't tea or coffee. They haven't been imported yet. The drinking water isn't safe. So you're drinking mm-hmm. what they call small beer, very weak, weak ales. They brewed, you know, purposely. So as a drink, people could drink all day without getting absolutely hammered. <laughs> mm-hmm. But obviously, if you are drinking small beer all day, you will probably be fairly merry by the late afternoon. And none of these historians come with an idea that, you know, the um, medieval and um, well up to the kind of the Enlightenment history was so bloody in Europe was because people taking the decisions were essentially pissed <laughs> and, they, you know, and, and more prone to be argumentative. I mean, I think that's pretty stretching a point, but, you know, it's kind of that, no, that's I, how kind of like a culture and alcohol cool. have changed. And, you know, it's, um, I think, you know, you can tell a lot about a culture, about the drugs and stimulants it endorses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they say of like tea, that was the drink the British Empire was built on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, because when we had tea, we had no, we had no, you know, we had an alternative not to be drinking small beer all the day. <laughs> but you're boiling it, so you're getting rid of a lot of the impurities. Meat. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's it's a it's very arguable. I think that there, there's something there's some connection there to. Uh, history and and that the response to drugs it's it's something sort of neglected i think in most science fiction is is that it's usually about technological you know um advancement you know what when when the robots come mm. but the robots are actually you know traditionally they're not as much, they're not the the thing that has affected our lives generally uh, I, you know, I have a robot in my kitchen. It's called my dishwasher. You know, mm. it's, it's marginally improved my life, but it, it doesn't affect my brain in the same way that um, that tea or coffee do. And they're ubiquitous. Well, this is it. I mean, co- the introduction of coffee was um, was a huge anti-coffee movement that people mm-hmm. had forgotten about, and coffee sure. was considered to be, you know, a dangerous drug at one stage. The devil's yeah. cup. It was called, you know, it's, um, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's very interesting, um, I think, kind of referring to the new accelerator. The time this story was written was it, it was a, I think culturally our view of drugs were beginning to change, uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, you do, you have had the gin palettes, you have had kind of the strange, um, history of modern, modern drug addiction of where, People too poor to afford gin discovered they could go to the chemist and buy opium, uh, even cheaper, and have a good night out on that, which led to a rise in huge amounts of opium addicts in the in the, in the sure. cities of, of uh, Britain. Uh, and they developed morphine as, which was stronger, a more stronger version of the same, you know, same compound, as a way of a, a, originally as a drug to get them, get opium addicts off opium. <laughs> and then we had a wave of morphine addicts, and so they developed heroin to get people off heroin. And then to get off heroin, we developed methadone to get heroin addicts off. <laughs> it all, it all yeah. does the same thing. Uh, it, and it's kind of just around when this story is written, this is when you're getting this kind of idea that maybe drugs are mm, bad okay. Whereas I think in the 19th century and sort of, be, you know, earlier, it's kind of, yeah, people take stuff and they get off the head. Oh, it does this to them, it does that, and it's all fine. You know what I mean? It's only 
the temperance movements that sort of, you know, peak in the 20s with prohibition, that's when we get this modern mindset that kind of, oh, it's these things are wrong, morally wrong. And yeah. that, and do these health panics about things. And whereas before that, it's going to be, well, you want to take it, get on with it. <laughs> you know? it, it's, it yeah, coffee is one of the things that Mormons don't drink, right? Uh, the, don't drink any stimulus, not tea either. Yeah, no tea. Well, no, yeah, no, mm. no caffeine, yeah. no hot, hot drinks or whatever they call them. Um, the thing is, is that, that cultural approach, it's taboo, right? It's mm. bad, is a response to the fact that, that, people can abuse them like mm. uh, that's actually one of the reasons i i think i i think my response to drinking is like that is because i i imagine i'm going to become an alcoholic so i just don't drink at all <laughs> but when i do drink it's like i i just don't like it really as well as i like my mind the way it is but the thing is is for a lot of people uh whatever it is the the alcohol the tobacco the coffee i, I certainly see that one um it it's a great benefit to them. That's why they do it. The reason people take oxycontin is because they want it, not because somebody's forcing it on them, right? Well, 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 this is it. I mean, it's kind of you know, even like say the most feared and you know biggest bad boy drug of sort of uh, is probably heroin. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, they you know they oh you take heroin your teeth will fall out you'll die you'll be emaciated you know you look like a zombie boo scary. But the fact is, people take it because it's bloody wonderful. It works for them, you know, and it's, it is a painkiller. And, you know, it, I think it's pretty much statistically proven that the people who do, um, you know, end up with serious heroin addictions are people who have got an awful lot they want to blot out in their life. And heroin does that sure. for them absolutely blissfully. Um, you know, I think sometimes um, the way the prohibition and the, the sort of the, the sort of public health messages are put, I don't think they really, t- you know, take into account that, you know, these things are great <laughs> for certain yeah. people in certain situations. <laughs> um, but it's, it's one of those things, it's kind of, you know, I think also on the subject of addiction, I think interestingly they discovered kind of, uh, among rats and bizarrely bees and other species, it's the same percentage of individuals will become addicted. <laughs> um, beehives actually have bouncers. Did you know this? Uh, uh, yes. Bee- beehives have bouncers and they don't just keep out bees from other hives. They actually turn away workers who come back pissed up. Who've had, <laughs> who've, who've, uh, you know, bees have worked out that you know in the autumn there's ferment there's apples on the ground fermenting you suck the juice out that's really funny that makes you right. feel great and if worker bees turn up drunk the bouncer will throw will not let them in he'll turn them away and if they re- repeatedly turn up drugs it'll punish them by biting off their legs wow but it's the same percentage i think it's like 12 percent who have this um substance abuse problem in bees that um, humans have, and it's the same in rats, and it's uh, wow. as well. And they found it in other species. It's, 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 you know, there is a certain percentage of people who are predisposed to be addicts of something. That if there's a substance, they will abuse it. The same way, you know, some people have cats who can't abide catnip. You've got other people who have cats who just can't get their head out of it. You know, yeah. Um, it's a strange, strange thing of a. Uh, <laughs> Maybe, you know, the moralizing in public health doesn't really going to make that much difference in the end if, you know, if you're 
why I live that way, and you have to make the law for the that twelve percent of the population. (laughs) Yeah, so they can get help. Sorry, not allowed to. Okay with it, you know. It's very interesting. I I think this um, this idea of drugs as a technology that we have to come to grips with is is very powerful, and and I think that's why the story is so powerful in 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 the thinking about it. It it doesn't seem to be uh, uh, usually taken that way. It usually is taken, I think, the way I took I first took it, which is it's just a fun little story uh, about a cute little idea, but. I think with the the illusions that are in there and the uh, the uh, suspicions that we get that Giverns is going to be um, abusing this, uh, and even our narrator are possibly going to be abusing this, make it much more sinister. And and typically this is the mad scientist story as well, right? This is the the man who invents a technology that he can take over the world with. Well, seriously, the New Accelerator isn't that far from um, Dr. Jekyll's famous sure. potion, you know. Um, uh, it, that's the thing, too, I believe. Yeah, well, that's how they had good intentions, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think it kind of, it's, in a way, the way, I think the way society's moved, that this, this story is probably now coming back into, not vogue as such, but becoming more relevant to us now because now we do i mean people are now just inventing new different pharmacological substances i mean on one hand there's people who are forever coming up with artificial and therefore legal versions of the popular illegal drugs like your cannabis ecstasy amphetamines cocaine whatever you but there's also i mean people doing smart drugs and you know kind of the steroids in sport and likewise similarly new versions of steroids that haven't been outlawed yet because they're not recognized they're that new and people are kind of this kind of designer drug idea is becoming it's not going away i know it kind of it got a lot of headlines kind of around this time sort of the internet was blowing up and it was designer drugs smart drugs cyberspace were all linked together and with virtual reality, and it all seems a bit voguish and sort of 90s now, but it's something that hasn't gone away. It's still out there. It's actually, you know, it's, there's more of it now than there is uh, when all this was in the, you know, getting the attention in the sort of popular press and among the chattering classes. I mean, you know, now it is a problem for lawmakers that there are drugs on the street that no one knows what exactly they do or what the, the effects are going to be. Or, you know, are they a hazard? Um, you know, are they safe in any shape, way or form? We don't know. Um, and, you know, it, it's everywhere. You know, the, obviously the people simulating illegal drugs will get the attention, but there are still people working on various things that will boost your concentration, boost your stamina, make you grow hair, increase your virility. <laughs> it's all happening, you know what I mean? It's almost unnoticed and not talked about because when we say drugs now, we usually think illegal drugs. That's right. Um Whereas actually, it's kind of we're a lot closer to Wells's time, where people were looking at a new frontier of pharmacy. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.